1: Plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Buying furniture is not easy. You want well designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture. available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mostly Radio from PRX I'm your host, Christopher Kimball Manit Shahan thinks the best way to sample the cuisines of India is to travel the country by train Today she tells us about planning long railway journeys around the snacks served at different stations such as funnel cakes or her favorite warm carrot pudding
3: What we would do is we would try to find an ice cream vendor because we would take that hot gajar halwa and put cold vanilla ice cream on it. And that combination was absolutely deadly. Amazing. My mouth is watering while I'm talking to you about this.
2: Also coming up, we make a vegetarian stew from Ethiopia. And later, Bianca Bosker finds serenity by watching ultra peaceful cooking shows. But first, we'll hear from Shannon Mustafer. She's the author of Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails. Shannon, welcome to Milk Street. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I love your book, Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails. Um, so what does the word tiki mean? Where does it come from and what is a tiki cocktail?
4: Sure. So tiki refers, from a cultural standpoint to religious practices and iconography from Polynesia. Now, where the cocktails are concerned, tiki is a term that was applied retroactively. So in the beginning of uh, the age of tropical cocktails, they were called exotic cocktails. And we're talking about mid-1930s California at Don Beachcombers in the Bay Area, then later at Trader Vic's and subsequent restaurants. It was in the mid 80s, early 90s, when Polynesian and tropical culture enthusiasts, mostly in California, began to research those bars and to look into bringing those cocktails back, that you started to see the, the word tiki emerge.
2: Let's talk about some of the classics. Uh, Don Beachcomber's uh, Zombie. What, what's a zombie?
4: A zombie is a showstopper of a drink. Okay, so... This thing has three different rums in it. It has grenadine, which is a pomegranate-based juice. It it kind of crosses the line in terms of sophistication because there's absinthe added to the drink, which is a nod to New Orleans. Adds more herbaceousness and you know elevates the drink beyond the the simple rum punch that is based on. It's just like a pumped-up kind of sexier rum punch, and you know there's some savvy marketing there it's, it's not just the cocktail that made it popular it was the limit to per customer so people like trying to get a third one trying to order one through their friend so i'm you know we're talking about the ingredients of the zombie but i think what's the biggest ingredient there is it's its cultural impact
2: uh the mai tai i didn't actually know what was in a mai tai until i picked up your book so what is in a mai tai
4: sure so the formula has changed somewhat, but to, to kind of simplify it, it is, in most bars, a blend of Jamaican and Martinesian rums, orja, which is an almond-based liqueur slash syrup, orange curacao, and lime. It's it's simpler than a lot of places make it out to be.
2: What are some of the techniques, like washing rum or bourbon? What What does that mean?
4: Sure, so... Washing means it's is essentially kind of uh, another way of saying infusing. Uh, Don Lee came up with this brilliant idea of taking rendered fat from bacon, adding it to whiskey, giving it time to sit at room temperature, and then later froze it so that the solids rose to the top and he could skim it off. And the result is you get this really nice, creamy texture. And depending on what kind of fat we're talking about, it could be smoky, it could be nutty. So as an example, I, I worked at a restaurant called The Finch where I did the same thing with a smoked duck breast fat and rum. And this drink was so crazy. I loved it to pieces. It was so easy. It was like a cheat. I've done it with coconut oil and rums, mezcal, it does all kinds of wonders no matter what spirit you're using. But it's just a nice way to add aroma and body and viscosity and just kind of smooth something out.
2: Man, you must have – how many – okay, in your bar, how many different bottles do you have?
4: I stopped counting at 100.
2: I, That's <laughs> what I thought. Yeah. It's
4: kind of comical. <laughs> I, was look, I, well, I look at it daily. I gaze upon it with fondness. There's just <laughs> a lot going on here. But, uh, yeah, there's a yeah, good amount.
2: I figured. It's probably 200. You just don't want to tell me. <laughs> um, so here's a question. You know, the martini, I, I think, is kind of get you drunk as fast as possible. At least that's my take on it. Um, the French aperitif is to sort of transition you from work to pleasure at the end of the day. What's the role of the tiki cocktail? In other words, w- what is it that it's really, really about besides the flavors?
4: I mean, first and foremost, fun, you know, and mystery, adventure, discovery, you know, I've had some of the best nights of my life in tiki bars because the mood is irreverent. I, I just love that that freedom to be free that you get in a tiki cocktail in a tiki environment.
2: So uh, what about tiki drinks often have strange, interesting containers, more much more so than regular cocktails? Uh, what role does the container play in all of this?
4: It's vital because the feast starts with the eyes. So Tiki takes it like way over the top. Like I've seen presentations where, you know, there's dry ice and the vessel is set down in a treasure chest or, you know, it comes in a rum barrel, you know, it comes in coconuts and hollowed out pineapples, you know, there's flaming garnishes. I once judged a competition where the team that, from a bar called Paradise Lounge in Bushwick, that is sadly no longer with us. They brought it full force. It was a fish tank with live <laughs> fish, huh. so the fish were isolated from the cocktail itself. But I, there was fish in there, and it was just it was crazy.
2: <laughs> so with all these choices, you probably drink something really boring, right? I mean, you know, it's always it's always the uh, the shoemaker's son who doesn't have shoes. What, what do you drink?
4: Well, I'm glad you asked, and you totally got me here. I, I love <laughs> sparkling wine. It's really easy. It's conversational. It's light. That's my drink of choice in a bar. When I'm at home, I enjoy sour IPAs. I don't really do cocktails, um, but if I have a spirits at home, it's usually neat. Or with a little bit of soda and lime, keeping it you know really easy because I'm, I'm kind of like the chef that just wants a beer and a cheeseburger at the end of the day.
2: <laughs> I, I just knew that was going to happen. <laughs> Shannon, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. I think it's time for my my time.
4: Chris, this sounds like an excellent idea, and thank you so much for having me.
2: That was Shannon Mustafer, author of Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails. It's time to take your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101.
5: Chris, before we take the first call, I've got a question for you. We are heading into pumpkin season, and I wanted to know, what is your favorite thing to do with pumpkin? (laughs) Carve it and
2: put a candle in it? (laughs) I mean, what?
5: All right, let's say winter squash, then.
2: You know, slice it around, roast it at 450 degrees, put some, you know, spices on it when you roast it, and then serve it with some little Greek yogurt on the top, maybe that's seasoned. You're done. Simple. Delicious. I mean, it's a very Yotama lengi kind of recipe, which I think is where I got the idea. But it's great with butternut squash. So.
5: Sounds delicious. And also, they're a great vehicle for all those Middle Eastern spices.
2: So Yeah, Yay. and it's simple. So, okay, on to the calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
0: Hey, this is Galen.
2: Where are you calling from?
0: I'm calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts.
2: I just saw you walk by. (laughs) (laughs) Same town. How can we help you?
0: I guess my question is, generally, are all tomatoes created equal? cooked a pizza last week and made a homemade tomato sauce and found myself wondering, should I put in fresh tomatoes if they're going to be cooked? If I do put in fresh tomatoes, which kind of tomatoes should I put in? Some recipes call for Roma. Some just say tomatoes. Some say canned tomatoes. And then once you go down canned, diced, crushed, stewed. What are the differences and what would be good to know about how to use them?
2: Good question. First of all, all tomatoes are created equal. They're all equally terrible (laughs) in terms of (laughs) fresh tomatoes. Last week, I got a couple tomatoes from a local greengrocer here. You know, they were pretty good, but about a third as good as what I grew up with, you know, as I remember anyway. So I don't know what's happened to tomatoes, but I've not had a great tomato other than small sun sungulls, the tiny ones, for decades. In Italy, when we have traveled there, when they make a tomato sauce, almost universally, they come out of a can. So I have no problem at all using canned tomatoes. The ones you want to stay away from are diced tomatoes because they add calcium carbonate or something similar to firm them up. And they don't actually ever really cook down into a sauce. So canned whole tomatoes is what I would use and make a sauce with them. In terms of, you know, canning your own sauce or your own sauce for storage, Roma tomatoes, which don't have a lot of liquid in them, tend to be meatier. But it's all about quality. Sarah, do you have any? Well,
5: I was going to say for pizza, like if I was going to make a pizza margarita, I would use fresh tomatoes, but I would salt them first. I sort of agree with Chris. I was sort of horrified by the first thing he said. But even getting from the farmer's market, sometimes they're a little mealy inside or they're not quite as tomatoey as they used to be.
2: Okay, I'm going to ask you, you have to answer honestly. Have you, in the last five years, ever picked up a tomato and smelled it and went, wow, that smells like a tomato?
5: Yeah, and you're not going to believe what it was. It was cocktail tomatoes Uh. on the vine from Whole Foods. Really? Yeah. They smelled fantastic and they tasted fantastic. But I generally have better luck with uh, fresh tomatoes if I salt them first. And I salt them on both sides and leave them for 20 minutes and then pat them dry. And that really pulls out the excess liquid, flavors them deeply, and concentrates the tomatoy
2: essence. I would add also a big splash of really good fruity olive oil at the end. It gives you this texture, this silky texture to the sauce and this flavor that I think, even if you start with mediocre canned tomatoes, is great. Use some Mm -hmm. grated onion, fry that up in the oil or saute it in the oil, and then slice garlic don't use crushed garlic, sliced garlic cloves, because they don't give you that really strong aftertaste. And don't overcook them in the oil; it'll cure any tomato, <laughs> if it's any deficiency, because it just doesn't matter when you got those ingredients, right, Sarah? I mean, it's really about this is tomato first aid, right?
5: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is too bad that we need yeah. tomato first aid, though. I agree. It is. What a shame. Anyway, well, we thank you for give that question. Shot. Yes,
6: I will. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really thanks for calling. It.
2: Sure. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call anytime. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Carl. Hi, Carl. Where are you calling from?
0: Greeley, Colorado.
5: How can we help you today?
0: So I have a jar of preserved lemons. I'm looking to expand how I use them outside of making like tagines. I'd like to use them in something like baba ganoush or hummus, and I'm not really sure where to go with them. How do I start using them?
5: I love preserved lemons. It's good stuff. I'd say anywhere you really want to add some acid and salt. So, fish, you know, one of those fish is very bland in a sauce for fish, or taking, you know, a fish fillet and putting a mixture of, say, olives, or maybe that's too much salt, but preserved lemons on top, some olive oil, some chopped scallions or something, baking it off, that would be wonderful. In any kind of sauce with baked chicken thighs, in butter, add it to mayonnaise for a dip. You could put it on sandwiches as a crunch, like a pickle. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things you can do with it. Chris, you want to weigh in?
2: Well, yeah, besides the tagine, I would say any braise, I mean, that's just a braise, uh, any braise or stew, meat stew, I slice little crescents of them and put them in a stew, and they sort of almost dissolve as you cook them. But they add a nice undercurrent, you know, if you don't use too much of it. If you just use the peel and dice it finely, You could make a relish with it with olives or whatever. You could put a little bit of it with softened butter and sort of have a lemony butter, which would be nice over chicken or fish or whatever. And also bulgur, couscous, other grains. Just mix a little bit of it in, like maybe two teaspoons of that chopped or very finely minced rind. In with that will just give it a little bit of boost. I mean, I think the secret of this is to keep it underwhelming, right? It's fairly potent. You know, it's just one of those things you're adding layers of flavor, and this is just another layer. You could throw it into Greek yogurt, a little bit of diced rind with some oil and herbs as a dipping sauce. That would also work.
0: Okay. Are you separating it from the peel then? If I were to mix it and say Greek yogurt, would I separate the peel from the pit?
2: Yes. That makes sense. You just finely, very finely diced. This is one of the few times when you actually need knife skills you want to finely dice the peel, but you'd separate it from the pith. I mean, if you're using a stew or tagine, I wouldn't bother you'd that.
5: just throw it in and it would melt. Just throw it in.
2: Sure, you know, sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense.
5: That was good. That was, was very that good. good. No, that, yeah.
0: yeah, that gives me a lot to work with.
5: Okay, Carl. All right,
2: Carl, thanks. Have,
5: Have thanks fun with those preserved lemons.
2: All right. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next we're chatting with chef and chalk judge Manit Chauhan. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
6: Hi, this is Jason Perkins, I'm the brewmaster at Allagash and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
1: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
2: This is Mo Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with chef and TV personality, Manit Shohan, about her new book, Chot. Manit, welcome to Milk Street.
3: Thank you so much, Chris. I'm so excited
2: to be talking to you. Uh, it's a pleasure having you. So, uh, we're talking about India, which is gigantic. <laughs> we're talking about train stations. Uh, we're talking about snacks. Chat. Uh Before we do that, you started as a as a kid in the winter traveling on a 900 mile journey <laughs> to see your grandparents. <laughs> So you have a lot of experience uh, traveling by rail. Could you just give us a quick primer on what that was like?
3: Absolutely. It's one of my favorite memories. Um, winter break used to be going to Punjab, which is northern India, and that's where my paternal grandparents were. And summer holidays would be going to southern India, where my maternal grandparents were. So it was Incredible. The trains were and are unlike the trains over here. The windows would be open. The doors would be open. The train would stop at each and every small train stop. And uh, the local vendors from that city or that town or that village would just climb the train to sell what was popular in that um, destination. And I would just look forward to all these train stations because I had mapped my entire two to three day journey based on what I was going to eat at what huh. station.
2: Why, why am I here in Boston? I, don't, I feel like I've been deprived all my life because I would have loved that train trip too. Um, so Chot, Chat C H A T is a Hindi word, I guess, meaning to lick. It's it's a snack. And so could you just give us some sense of uh, the range of foods that you might experience? I, I assume it's huge.
3: Oh my God, absolutely. Like I firmly believe that you can make anything into a chaat. Chaat is this lickable concoction of different textures, flavors. There is sweet, there is spicy, there's tangy, there's crunchy, and just a perfect Bite of all of these together is what makes a perfect chart you can go to any corner in India and there will be a chart Um, like for example in Delhi in winter you get a sweet potato and a star fruit chart Mm. Um, you know people keep on coming up with new charts and I also have been guilty of creating charts based on what is seasonal over here like recently I created a strawberry and a rhubarb chart which was incredible
2: so you structured this book uh, around the railway stations around India. Is that because those are the defining places where chad are served?
3: Well, uh, to me, one of the biggest reasons of planning the book around uh, railway stations was that in a really short span of time, let's say two or three day train journey, you can taste and experience hmm. dishes which are so vastly different. So if you're traveling from Eastern India to Southern India, based on the number of states that you're going to cover, just the buffet of dishes that you're going to travel is so extensive and just shows the range of dishes that you can get in India.
2: Yeah, you mentioned in the book a, a couple of things that, that struck me. Uh, one was funnel cakes, <laughs> which <laughs> I'm familiar with in, a, in the American version at the fairs in late August. Uh, can we talk about funnel cakes?
3: Absolutely. I mean, funnel cakes, pretty much jalebis, uh, which is really funny because that's what I made with my daughter last night. Hmm. Um, they are these amazing, crispy, crunchy, smaller versions of what we see as a funnel cake over here. In India with jalebis, what we do is we soak it in a sugar syrup, which usually has cardamom and saffron in it. And I mean, I can just imagine myself having a bite of that crunchy, sweet, crispy, warm jalebi in the middle of a chilly like winter. Uh,
2: Here's one that caught my eye. Carrot pudding with saffron and pistachios. That sounds terrific.
3: It's incredible. You know, the the best memories that I have of the gajar halwa is it's usually we could only get it during the winters because winters was the time that carrot was harvested. And the winter carrots in India are red in color. And um, you would have hot gajar halwa, which has been cooked in a lot of ghee. And it has the most decadent and luxurious taste to it, especially when it's warm. And then what we would do is we would try to find an ice cream vendor because we would take that hot gajar halwa and put cold vanilla ice cream on it. And that combination was absolutely deadly. Amazing. Hmm. My mouth is watering while I'm talking to you <laughs> about this.
2: What of the charts you talk about it has tutti-frutti cereal garnish with lots of mango and ice cream. So some, some of these are kind of uh, fanciful, let me put it that way.
3: Which is, I think, what a lot of charts are. I think charts to me is almost a study of overindulgence you know, let's add one more component to take this over the top. And which is how even I approach charts when I make charts at any of my restaurants. I'm like, huh, this is perfect. What else can I add to this? And that's how a chart comes about in my mind.
2: So it sounds to me that charts may have started as a practical way of feeding people who were on long trips on railways. But over time, they evolved, in, as you said, into something where it was over-the-top indulgence. But did they st- start that way, or did they just start as a practical way of feeding people? You know,
3: it's really interesting. I was trying to read the history of charts, and they say that the charts were conceived in the royal kitchens. Huh. But now chart has pretty much mass appeal. Like when you go to India, you will see on corners, they are these street vendors who are surrounded by people. And at a lightning pace, they are making one or two charts, which they are known for. And that's it. They will not have an extensive menu of 10, 15 items. There'll be one or two things that they are good at and that there are people from all over the city who go there to just eat the chaat that they make.
2: Okay, so I want to make a chaat. Yes. Uh, but I'm a I'm like novice chaat category here. <laughs> so could you give me an example or give our listeners an example of something they could make at home to, that would be simple to make?
3: I think the simplest chaat to make is an aloo chaat, which is a potato chaat. Basically, what you do is you just peel the potatoes, boil it, cut it into cubes, sizable cubes, and then deep-fry those potatoes so that it has the crunchy exterior and, you know, the creamy interior, almost like french fries, right? And then just toss it with red chili powder, roasted cumin powder, and then there is a spice blend which is called chaat masala, which is predominantly dried mango powder. So it's tart. And then put it in a bowl, top it with some yogurt, some tamarind chutney, which can be store pot. Um, and then top it maybe if you have pomegranate seeds, some cilantro, and that I think is one of the simplest charts to make. You know, what I love doing are these chart parties where I get all of these ingredients. I put it on a table and when my friends come, they make their own charts based on their preferences.
2: If you talk about different regions of India, are there some flavor combinations that help define different cuisines or regions? I know that's infinitely complicated.
3: Now, like um, if you think about southern India, southern India uses a lot of coconut oil, uses curry leaves, uses mustard seeds. um, And the spice blends tend to be a little bit more spicier. And then when we go to northern India, northern India has the heavy buttery sauces. Um, a, a lot of nuts are also used in sauces. And then you look at Western India, Western India has the Portuguese influence. So there is a lot of breads which are used in snacks, which are stuffed with fritters made of spiced potatoes, or even goat or mutton. And then Eastern India, there is a lot of mustard oil in their cooking. So this is pretty much just scratching the surface because each and every region has distinct spices that make it uniquely that uh, states
2: are are there certain things that just exist in restaurants and don't exist in the home kitchen there's a divide there
3: Uh, you know the the authentic tandoori dishes you find more in restaurants because of the lack of a tandoor in the house. But you know what? There is a really interesting Hindi word, which is jugar. Jugaar means that you very creatively come up with solutions for a problem that is presented in front of you. So I have seen people without a tandoor who would make a naan on the back of a griddle and turn it over a fire. Mm -hmm. Or uh, as, uh, you know, my mom would do, she would, you know, a pressure cooker is a quintessential equipment in each and every Indian household. She would put three naans on the wall, inside the wall of a pressure cooker and then Mm -hmm. turn it over a gas stove. Or to get Mm -hmm. the really um, smoky flavor that you get from the tandoor, what we do is we take a piece of charcoal. just. On the fire, burn it. And when it is red hot, put it in a metal bowl and put that bowl in the chicken curry and put a little bit of ghee on it and seal it. And that way the smoke. So basically, you're, you're, it's our smoking gun.
2: That's a really good idea. But let me just say, <laughs> your mother, let me just to get this right. Your mother took a pressure cooker and turned it upside down over a gas stove to make an improv tandoor oven. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I heard that right. Okay. I like that. You know, it's pretty amazing. Um, so, uh, Bombay, Mumbai is special. It's huge. Uh, the food scene is amazing. Do you have a special uh, I don't know, passion for that city because of its size and complexity, or does it stand out in some way from the rest of India?
3: What I love about Mumbai is the melting pot that it is, right? There are some dishes which are so quintessential. But the fun part is that all of these dishes have had an influence from all over the world. And that's what makes it so delicious. There is a five-star hotel which has the best food. And right behind that... Is street food which has the most incredible kebabs and you go to the street food there'll be a person who is not doing economically as well eating the same food uh, with a person who has driven up uh, in a Ferrari so to me what uh, Mumbai signifies is that food good food is something that just brings everybody together you know, regardless of the economic standing you are, or what religion you are or where you are from.
2: I think I need to say amen to that. (laughs) Uh, Manit, thank you so much uh, for being on Milk Street. Really, uh, my pleasure.
3: Thank you, Chris.
2: That was Manit Shohan. Her book is Chaat, Recipes from the Kitchens, Markets and Railways of India. Back in 1971, I booked a third-class seat on the Orient Express from Istanbul to Salzburg, changing trains in Zagreb, then part of Yugoslavia. On the first night, I snuck up to an empty first-class carriage to be awoken in the early morning with a jolt. The train had derailed, having struck a cow on the tracks. But back in third class, I discovered that the train had no food, and so generous Turkish workers shared their garlicky, blood sausage. I finally learned to purchase dinner during quick stops in small Yugoslavian towns from vendors who were crowding the platform. And I also learned that train travel, whether in India or now Croatia, is not just transportation. It's the very best way to get to know the people as well as their food. It's time to head into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, which is Ethiopian-style chickpea stew. Jason, how are you? I'm doing great.
0: You were in Ethiopia. I was, Addis Baba.
2: And you came across a recipe which is very common there, which we don't tend to make here, which is a chickpea stew, but it's not the kind of stew that I would think of as chickpea stew.
0: No, no, you know, it it has the consistency, actually, of polenta, and it's called shirawat. And it is made from a combination of onions and spices and a mixture of ground-dried chickpeas that have been seasoned. It's cooked very much, again, like polenta, and as so much of Ethiopian food is, it's eaten with injera, the sourdough kind of spongy flatbread that they use both as a bread and as a utensil. It's a daily meal because it's inexpensive, easy to make, and very nutritious. And so I I cooked with a woman, Tigis Chane, who's a very talented home cook, who introduced me to not just this dish, but also to kind of the way spices work in Ethiopian cooking, which was completely different from what I expect.
2: Well, I saw some of the photos from your trip, and one of them was a guy grinding (laughs) spices. And the entire shop was orange.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's fascinating because spices are treated so much differently in Ethiopian cuisine. When we're cooking, we often think of the main component of the meal, whether it's protein or vegetable or whatever. And then we figure out how we want to spice it. They come in from the opposite direction where they start with the spices. Very often it's berbere, which is kind of the national spice blend. It's got a lot of chilies in it. It's got fenugreek, cumin. And depending on whose blend you're using, could be dozens of other ingredients. And spices are so important that they actually have community spice mills in most villages where you go to the market, you buy your ingredients, often to make bearberry, and then you bring them to the spice mill and they grind them for you. So Tigist was showing me Shirawat. And what was interesting was that it, like most watts or stews in Ethiopian cooking, begin the same way. They begin by cooking onions in oil and then adding copious amounts of babberry or other spice blends. And then you decide What's the protein or what's the vegetable you're going to add? So they come at it from the opposite direction, which was really fascinating. In this case, we were making sherawatt, which uses the ground chickpeas. And it was really delicious. And as I was talking to Tigist, I was saying, you know, this is really a very interesting stew. And is there a version of it that uses whole chickpeas? And I was kind of curious because I saw the ground chickpeas everywhere. And that's when she introduced me to a tetrawat, which is essentially the same stew, but with whole chickpeas. And I saw that over and again in Ethiopia, where it kind of starts with the same base, the onions, the oil, the berbere and then you could use chicken and make wat. You could use red lentils, you could use chickpeas, you can use collards, and it goes in many directions. It was really fascinating.
2: So the berbere, the spice blend is
0: also there. I mean, there's a lot of it, Mm -hmm.
2: not a teaspoon.
0: No, no. Tablespoons. Sometimes by the cupful, depending on what you're making.
2: So it's also texture as well as spice, right?
0: Exactly. It doesn't just add flavor. It thickens the stew, which was really fascinating to watch. I mean, she was preparing a large volume of this for me. And she was stirring in this large cauldron with a broomstick, actually. It was so much. And as she was stirring, she added just cupfuls of berberry and it turned the stew bright, bright red and really thick.
2: We're not used to massive amounts of spices or spice mixes, spice blends. Do you find that it overpowers? everything else? Or somehow it works with the other ingredients?
0: You know, the other ingredients tend to be so simple. And that's actually one of the reasons that spices are so important in Ethiopian cooking is the main ingredients tend to be very simple ingredients, you know, onions and chicken, and not a whole lot else, you know, some simple greens. So the spices end up being a main component of the dish. Again, we tend to think of them after you know, we tend to right. think of them as the way we bring the chicken out, but this is actually the main component, and it was really, really an interesting way of approaching cooking.
2: Jason, thank you. A chickpea stew from Ethiopia, which uh, we make with whole chickpeas, and I think some ground lentils and lots of berbere. Although we make up our own version, of
0: course. <laughs> JM, thank you. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Ethiopian-style chickpea stew at LookStreetRadio.com.
2: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Bianca Bosker introduces us to the Internet's most peaceful cooking videos. That and more in just a moment. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Heather Lindenman from Indiana. How can we help you today? I recently
1: had some pork processed. My kids have 4-H pigs and we process the meat at the end of the summer. And um, previously we haven't had the pork neck bones, but they were included
5: in the processing this time. And I'm not quite sure what to do with them. Wow. Well, first of all, I have to applaud you for having your kids raise pigs and then having them, you know, getting the pigs processed. If you're going to be a carnivore, that's all good stuff to know and be responsible. So yay. But let me just say about neck bones, they're, you know, you can braise them just like oxtails or shanks. They're really in the same category. You know, you could brown them off or not brown them off. I mean, Chris we'll probably leap on that bandwagon say so you don't need to brown them off first and then, you know, add some liquids so you can make a nice gravy or sauce or whatever and then just cook them till they're tender and they'll be delicious. Chris, you want to weigh in?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've had a stew in Oaxaca where they use neck bones and they thickened it with some masa, some cornmeal with a lot of chilies and it was delicious. The thing I would do with it, I was in Mexico City a year ago and came back with this great recipe for stewed beans. And I would just cook the neck bones in with the beans. You know, obviously take the bones out and you have some of the meat there and it would flavor the beans. It would be a great flavoring. So that would be my highest and best use. We used to raise pigs on our farm too. And the kids, we'd actually slaughter the pigs on the farm in late September. My second oldest daughter, Caroline, was quite helpful when she was a young girl. And now she's into farming and raises rabbits and chickens and all sorts of things. I agree with Sarah. If you're going to do it, it's great to have the kids see the process because then they understand it. So good for you.
5: I was just going to add one more dish with the neck bones. What Italian-Americans refer to as Sunday gravy, which is, you know, when they make that tomato sauce and add all different kinds of meat products to it. And I think, you know, just braised in a nice tomato garlic sauce would be yummy with the neck bones, too. Although I love the bean idea. You know, pork and beans, woo match made in heaven. <laughs> At any rate, thanks so much for calling.
2: Thanks for calling, and, and uh, good for you for having raising the pigs. That's yes,
5: great. absolutely. Well, thank you so much.
2: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you want to master a new technique or find out about a new pantry stable, give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time and slowly. 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Sam. Where are you calling from? I'm in Geneva, Switzerland. Woo-woo. Okay, I've been there briefly for a few days. So how can we help you?
0: I find when I make pasta with mushrooms, it ends up kind of disappointing. And I've been trying a lot of different mushrooms, regular button mushrooms and chanterelles and porcinis, you know, just using olive oil and garlic, but just comes out pretty bland. And I don't know what I'm doing wrong.
2: If you're using button mushrooms, which have almost no flavor to start with, it's not about the mushrooms. It's really about the cooking. So I would use butter to saute them. I would use a fair amount of salt. Like duxelle, which is a reduced finely chopped mushroom, which is used as a stuffing or filling. I would cook it way down. You could consider adding a umami ingredient to it first, uh, tomato paste to the pan before you add the mushrooms. You could add a couple anchovies, which dissolve in the oil before you add the mushrooms. Cook it way down. you got to use highly concentrated ingredients. Don't add anything else to it, just the mushrooms, salt, butter, cream. Make sure it's really reduced. If you finish the pasta in the sauce, make sure you don't have too much pasta water in it. You want to get this really concentrated. A little brandy or cognac to finish at the end like you would with a
5: Sam, did you slice the mushrooms?
2: I just sliced them
0: kind of roughly.
5: Well, slicing's good because that means they're thin and they were all fresh.
0: Yeah, I, I've always used fresh ones. I essentially start out with some olive oil then put a like a whole clove of garlic, and just let it get a little golden brown. Then I throw the mushrooms in and wait till they get golden brown, and then I'll throw in perhaps a bit of thyme, a bit of white wine, and then the pasta and some of the pasta water.
5: Are you salting the pasta water?
0: I salt the pasta water, and I salt the mushrooms. I probably use less salt than Chris would suggest. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Probably.
5: And probably than I would suggest.
0: Um, I, I use a pinch.
5: Technically, the pasta water should almost taste like salt before you add the pasta. So let me suggest what I would do. I would mince up some shallots and saute them till they're translucent. Then I would add the sliced mushrooms and cook them until they give off their liquid and begin to get golden. Then I would add minced garlic and cook that for about 30 seconds. I approve of the white wine. But meanwhile, something else I was going to suggest is to get some dried porcini. And soak them Uh. in warm water for 20, 30 minutes. Then save the soaking liquid from the porcini and add both the porcini and the cooking liquid to the mushrooms that you've already sautéed. Cook your pasta in salted water and then drain Uh. the pasta before it's finished cooking. So add the pasta, a little bit of the pasta cooking liquid, some chicken broth and... Finish cooking the pasta in the skillet and then throw in a nice freshly grated handful of Parmesan cheese and I bet you'll be happy. All right. Too many ideas. Thanks so much. Thanks All for right. calling. All the best.
2: Thanks, guys. I'm yeah. a big fan. Take care. Okay. Bye. This is mostly Radio. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, I'm Jim from Redding, California. My tip is about marinating tofu. Can't squeeze all the water out, can't get it to marinate right, it just never works. My vegetarian sister told me the secret. Freeze it solid, and then defrost it naturally in the refrigerator, and then it squeezes out like a sponge and soaks up all the marinade like a sponge. This works, it changes the consistency, it's good. Give it a shot, freeze your tofu. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's journalist Bianca Bosker. Bianca, what's uh, on your mind this week?
1: Well, I've recently become obsessed with this cooking show that's so tranquil, so minimal. It makes Julia Child look like a punk rock concert. <laughs>
2: Wait, is that, is that my show? What, what are you talking <laughs> about?
1: No. So it's actually a YouTube channel called Peaceful Cuisine. Huh. And it's done by someone named Roya Takashima, who has also worked teaching cooking classes and as a chef. And nominally, each video on his YouTube channel is about a different vegan recipe. So learning to make things like mochi or a lemon cake or ice cream, but... I actually think that the real pleasure of it is not in learning to make anything at all, but just in the experience of watching it. You know, I think that there's so many cooking shows that are about information, and this one is really just about vegging out, watching, and experiencing. I mean, the videos themselves are little cinematic masterpieces, very soft focus, soothing color palette. All you see are basically close-ups of Takashima's hands or the food that he is working with. So, you know, a wooden cutting board on a rough-hewn table, slopes of powdered sugar with little crumbs falling down it. Is
2: this like a white noise machine except cinematically done? Or is there a method to his madness? Is there some other message he's delivering here?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean... I should say that, you know, while I think a lot of other cooking shows really traffic in adrenaline, right, you've got the banter, you've got the competition, the charm of this is that everything has been stripped away. Very little happens, Hmm. which I think is precisely the appeal. So Takashima barely talks at all, if ever. Um, What you get instead are sort of these superimposed instructions, you know, 200 grams of beans or water, and all you hear is the sounds of his cooking and preparation. Mm. And I think we think of food porn as being visual, But in this case, the sound is a big part of the appeal. And it is a very big appeal. Peaceful Cuisine has more than 2 million followers on YouTube Hmm. and avid fans all over the world.
2: So is this something you think came out of, you know, some very smart corporate people who knew a lot about the film industry? Or do you think this was a homegrown guy with a couple of cameras who just figured this out on his own?
1: I think it was a homegrown guy. I mean, I I have to say, I don't know the whole kind of creation myth of uh, of peaceful cuisine, but what is certain is that it's really tapped into something online. Are you familiar with ASMR? No. Oh, wow. ASMR is Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. So there are some people who, when they hear the sound of whispering or maybe the swish of feather or fabric, get a really calm, kind of tingly feeling. Often in the scalp, um, it sort of provokes this feeling like you're melting. Hmm. And the internet is full of ASMR videos, but peaceful cuisine for some people is um, a big hit within this sort of subgenre of ASMR cooking videos.
2: So, what does ASMR or this peaceful cuisine? Tell us about what's going on with a human condition right now, because I bet you've thought of
1: this. (laughs) I have. I would say there's two things. One is they are, as the name implies, peaceful. I mean, they feel like this wonderful antidote to this frenzy, manic pace that so many of us go to. I mean, I think oftentimes when I'm on the Internet, it's just this flood of information and people doing things in colors and music and words. And this, again, just strips mm. it away. It's very bare. It's very slow. Um, and, and there's something really wonderful about that. You know, when you read the comments on these videos, um, people talk about how they watch these videos uh, and they put them to sleep. And in this case, that's a really good thing. And I would say there's a second thing that I've really relished about them, which is that I think when it comes to food, we oftentimes sort of fetishize the raw ingredient or the final product, and we oftentimes skip over all of that work that happens in between. The cutting, the measuring, the pouring, and for me, I I really love the way that peaceful cuisine just lingers in each act of the cooking process.
2: Well, this is the opposite of when I was young, everyone in the food industry was selling us on cooking as being inconvenient, right? Uh, it's the work. It's between the raw ingredient and the finished product, all that stuff you want to get rid of. Uh, and that's still being sold today, right? I mean, uh, you buy uh, an appliance to get rid of some of the work. You're saying that it's the work. <laughs> it's the stuff in between we should celebrate because that's the joy of cooking is the knife sliding through the cucumber. And the final food, which we always take to be the, you know, the the big moment, is actually not the big moment. The big moment was getting
1: there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you know the kind of creaky, rubbery sound that cutting into a cabbage makes? It's squeaky. It's squeaky. Yeah, it's this wonderful sound. And the little Hmm. wiggly dance that the top of lemon cake does when you cut through it. Um, You know, I think that some of the recipes are certainly... They're, they're definitely inconvenient. I mean, you look at uh, the video for making lemonade and, oh boy, <laughs> there's a lot of steps. Um, but I also have to say that, you know, whether I make that lemonade or not, I've really enjoyed watching Takashima do it.
2: Bianca, thank you. Now I know what you do to fall asleep. You listen to a knife squeaking through cabbage. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I'm going to go check it out. Thank you. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. Peaceful Cuisine on YouTube has over 2 million subscribers proving the old law of physics. For every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction. You know, social media is a hotbed of equal but opposite offerings. If you like it fast, there's slow. If you like it loud, there's peaceful. If you want it short, there's long. So the next time a pundit tries to derive meaning from social media, I suggest they follow the laws of physics. If you try to find some meaning you'll find no meaning at all. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. Before you go, I'd like to take a moment to thank our co-executive producer, that's Annie Sinzabaugh, for making Milk Street Radio such a great success. Annie's smarts, her experience, her hard work have been the foundation of this show for years, and I want to wish her well as she moves on to other challenges. To paraphrase Edward R. Murrow, goodbye and good luck.
1: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinzaba, Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sidney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. An audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.
2: You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed.